spending uh, time in uh, Psalm 89 today. There are three doors in, uh, that lead to the cathedral in Milan. Up there. <laughs> um, and uh, in, in, above one of the doors, um, above these flowers, there's this inscription, all that pleases is but a moment. Above another door, it says, all that troubles is but a moment. And above the main gate going into uh, this cathedral, it says, the only is important, which is eternal. The only is important, which is eternal. God's faithfulness is eternal. It is unending, is perpetual. It is timeless. It is eternal. And so God's faithfulness is what Psalm 89 deals with throughout. It's uh, said at the very beginning, it's a maskal of Ethan the Ezraite. A maskal simply means a teaching. And it was, the author was Ethan, who was one of the three who, priests who would carry the Ark of the Covenant. The other two being Heman, of which we looked at last week, Psalm of Lament. And the third one was Asaph. So these three dudes and another, another would carry the Ark of the Covenant. Well, throughout this psalm, we hear about God's faithfulness. And you can count the word faithfulness eight different times. We hear of his unfailing love. That's six different times. His eternal or never-ending love. That's four different times. We can read the word forever eight different times. In his covenant or his oath or his promises, again, eight different times in this one psalm. For example, in, starting in verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. The Lord said, I've made a covenant with David, my chosen servant. I have sworn this oath to him. I will establish your descendants as kings forever. They will sit on your throne from now until eternity. In other words, God is faithful. And, and Ethan uses these big words, these words of forever and character and unfailing, eternal, over and over again to describe God's faithfulness. We first hear about God's faithfulness in his character in the heavens. And let's pray before we continue on. And so, Lord Jesus, I, I want to, along with my brothers and sisters, reflect on your faithfulness, Lord. Uh, may this truth resound in our hearts and our minds and our spirits this morning. Lord, we so desperately need to hear of your faithfulness. And I pray that you uh, speak by your spirit throughout the rest of this service and through my humble attempt to um, unveil your word by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So we see that God is faithful even in the heavens. In verse 5 through 8, all heaven will praise your great wonders, Lord. Myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? <clears throat> Compared to the Lord, all other created beings in heaven are, are nothing compared to his greatness, his faithfulness. 
Verse 7, the highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You are entirely faithful. And the author continues on in verses 9 through 14, he is faithful on the earth. You rule the oceans, you subdue the storm-tossed waves. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours, you created it all. You created north and south, Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon. Praise your name. However, if we are to fully experience God's faithfulness in our lives, then we need to do something. Our part is to simply surrender and receive his faithfulness. In verses 13 through 18, Verse 15 says, Happy or blessed are those who hear the joyful call to worship. And worship simply means, I surrender to you. I, I surrender. We, we sometimes worship like this with open hands, or like this, or like this, depending how, how uh, demonstrative we want to be. Sometimes it's like this. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship. There were three frogs who were sitting on a lily pad, and one decided to jump off. How many were left? How many? Let me repeat this. There are three frogs sitting on a lily pad, and one jumped off. How many were left? Or one decided to jump off. How many were left? Three. There were three left, right? Because the frog only decided to jump off. He never took the leap. It's not enough simply to know that God is faithful, to have this intellectual truth that God is real. We've got to act upon our belief if if we're to experience his attributes, his faithfulness. The devil believes intellectually that God is real, but he's never surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus. He's never said, Lord, have your way in my life as we worship. He's never done that. The word for believe in the Bible is an active verb. It's not passive. It means to trust. It means to rely upon. It means to cling to. It means to surrender. It would be sort of like, again, a drowning person who's out there just flailing in the water and someone from a, a ship throws him a life preserver. And so to cling to like this, I believe in this life preserver. It's going to save my life. That's what belief means in Scripture. Whoever believes in in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. Believe means to cling to, not an intellectual belief like the devil has. Happy or blessed are those who hear the joyful call to surrender, to worship. Worship is an active word as well. Have your way, Lord. It goes on in verse 15, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. These These are the blessings that come to us. They rejoice all day long in your wonderful reputation. They exult in your righteousness. You are their glorious strength. It pleases you to make us strong. Yes, our protection comes from the Lord, and he, the Holy One of Israel, has given us our king. So those who worship God or surrender to God's will, they're promised 
light or wisdom and truth. They're promised the presence of the Lord. They're promised his joy. They're promised his strength. And they're promised his protection in these short few verses. God is faithful in his character. Secondly, God is faithful in his covenant promises to King David and to the rest of the lineage and the people of of Israel. In verses 19 through 29, we won't read all of them. But the difference between a contract and a covenant we looked at last week is a contract can be broken. You know, I missed my appointment to the dentist and, uh, oh well, they reschedule me. But a covenant is not broken. It's like a a father-child or or mother-child. You know, they might disobey you. They might forget something, but you're not going to, okay, we'll just cancel that appointment. I'll see you later, kids. See you in a few months, you know. A covenant is not meant to be broken. God is faithful in his covenant. In verse 19, Long ago, you spoke in a vision to your faithful people. You said, I have raised up a warrior. I've selected him from the common people to be king. I have found my servant David. I have anointed him with my holy oil. My faithfulness and unfailing love will be with him. And by my authority, he will grow in power. And then skip down to 27. I will make him my firstborn son, the mightiest king on earth. I will love him and be kind to him forever. My covenant with him will never end. I will preserve an heir for him. His throne will be as endless as the days of heaven. Again, so David was promised by God unfailing love that he would be the firstborn son of a lineage, kings forever, a never-ending covenant with him, always have an heir on the throne. This is my promise to you, David. This is my promise to my people, Israel. So that's good. That's positive. God is faithful. But then we come to verse 38 in the psalm. And there's a very disturbing shift. And this is what caused me to study this psalm this past week. Because as I read it, I went, huh? God seems to turn on a dime on his anointed king and his chosen people, which led them to great confusion. And it does for us as well in life. Thirdly, God is faithful in his chastening when we're disobedient. Check out these negative words that follow to the end in verse 38. But now, Ethan writes, you have rejected him and cast him off. Speaking of King David and and the kings that followed You are angry with your anointed king. You have renounced your covenant with him. You have thrown his crown in the dust. You have broken down the walls protecting him and ruined every fort defending him. Everyone who comes along has robbed him and he has become a joke to his neighbors. You have strengthened his enemies. You have made them all rejoice. You have made his sword useless and refused to help him in battle. You have ended his splendor and overturned his throne. You have made him old before his time and publicly disgraced him. All right, let's close in prayer. God's chastening seems rather harsh here and inconsistent with both his character and his covenant promises. 
God, you just said this, now you're saying this? God has renounced his covenant promise with us. Has he? Well, Israel's king at this point, Zedekiah, in the lineage of David, uh, Judah's king, had been conquered, and he, along with the people of Israel, had been taken into exile into Babylon and made slaves, which led them to great confusion. So there they sat in confusion in verse 46. Oh, Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever as we sit here in Babylon and suffer? How long will your anger burn like fire? Remember how short my life is, how empty and futile this human existence Have you ever felt that way? Like, where are you, God? How long is this going to take place? How long am I going to be under the thumb of depression or darkness? We know that God is faithful. We've heard it ever since we were this old in Sunday school, over and over again. We've sung, great is thy faithfulness. But it sure doesn't feel like you're faithful now, Lord. You haven't answered my prayers the way... I thought you would. You seem so far away, and now I'm stuck in this tremendous pain and disappointment and darkness. Why, Lord, would you allow this suffering in my life? And so I thought about why God allows suffering at times. Well, obviously, sometimes it's because of our disobedience. We reap what we sow. Israel had turned to many idols and they had refused to listen to the voices of the prophets and the godly kings. And so after years and years, God said, okay, um, there's, there's going to be Babylon now. Or secondly, we encounter suffering because, simply because we live in a broken world. Of the 3,000 who lost their lives, or 3,000 around, on September 11th, 2001, There are many believers who died in those attacks, along with unbelievers. We live in a broken world. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Thirdly, sometimes we encounter pain because of our obedience. Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat, and they submitted to his order. They they obeyed his command, and when they did so, they found themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, And these experienced fishermen, they were sure that they were going to die that night. They had never been so deathly afraid because of their obedience. God led them straight into a storm. Countless believers in Christ throughout the world refused to deny the name of Christ. And they pay the price of imprisonment, of torture, and even of martyrdom for adhering to their testimony. Our obedience sometimes leads us to suffering. Or fourthly, to make us more like Jesus. When Lynn preached a couple weeks ago, she said the word psalm comes from the word zomar, which means to make music, which makes sense. We sing the psalms. But it also means to pluck or to prune, to pluck a guitar or to pluck, you know, uh, grapes off a vineyard or to prune the vine. When we read through Psalms, God sometimes, or God's word actually, he sometimes prunes us. As Jesus said in John 15, that the vineyard, the, uh, the vine dresser, he cuts off every branch. 
in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So oftentimes when we're being pruned by the Holy Spirit, it feels very painful. It feels like we're suffering, and we are suffering. But God's doing this by his Spirit to prune us so that we'll be more like Jesus, more fruitful. You know, there's rubber bands like this. Rubber bands are made for one purpose, right? For third graders, no. They're made for one purpose, and it's to stretch and then bind things together like this. And when they do so, then they're accomplishing their purpose. Well, we are like rubber bands, and we're not designed to sit in a drawer like this for decade after decade. We're designed to be stretched so that we can be useful and hold things together. And sometimes when we're pruned, we feel like we're being stretched. But it's making us more fruitful, more useful. Well, we often believe lies about our suffering as well. Um, the first lie that we often believe is God can't wait to judge sinners, man. We read through the, the second half of this psalm and we think, see, God's going to give it to them now because they were disrespectful to him. He can't wait to judge you and to punish you. God will be faithful to his promises forever. They'll be unending. That is, that is until we mess up. And when he messes up, then he'll judge us and he'll punish us. Or sometimes people say, when I am experiencing difficulties in my life or misfortune, it must be because God is punishing us or me. And that, my friends, is a lie from the pit of hell. Verse 30, but his, if his descendants forsake my instructions and fail to obey my regulations, if they do not obey my decrees and fail to keep my commands, then I will punish their sin with a rod and their disobedience with beating. So we think, okay, God wants to punish us. Another lie is punishment and discipline are the same thing. When we read in verse 32, I will punish their sin with a rod. The word rod here is referencing the shepherd's rod that he would use to corral the sheep, to discipline them when they're wandering outside the flock toward danger. And so he'll use them and give them a gentle tap, get them back in line with the flock. And he uses the rod to fend off um, all these predators as well. And so this rod is used to protect and to redirect the sheep. It's not meant to beat the tar out of the sheep. When we wander from Jesus, our good shepherd, he uses his rod to guide us back into the fold so that we repent of our sin rather than walk toward destruction. Psalm 23 says, Your rod, Lord, and your staff, they comfort me. They don't whip me into shape. They comfort me. God is faithful to chasten us because he loves us. The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens those he accepts as his children. God is faithful in his chastening. In the same way, when a loving parent 
would respond to a toddler after the toddler reaches for that, that fireball out on your back deck and, and the logs are burning ablaze and after being warned, don't go near that, the child is going up to that pretty fire, going to touch the fireball, which would give third-degree burns to, to the hands of the child. And sometimes parents will say, no, 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 and run over there and grab the child or swat, swat the hand away like this, causing this child to become scared. Or it might startle them even to tears. Oh, what a bad parent. No, we don't think that. The parent wants to prevent the kid from receiving third-degree burns. And because of the parent's love, he or she will discipline in that way. When someone occasionally tells me that God must be angry with them and judging them because of their, because they're experiencing loss in their life or an illness or depression or pain, you know, it's because God is just judging me. He's just punishing me for my sin. Then I respond, do you intentionally heap pain and misery upon your child or grandchild when they disobey you? Well, no. Well, then you must have more compassion and mercy than God, your heavenly father. Smile. No, God doesn't judge us for a sin like that. But it doesn't seem that God is, but, but it seems that God is always punishing his people in the Old Testament because of their consistent disobedience. But as you study the Old Testament, as my Old Testament prof would say, the mercy of God and the grace and the patience of God is seen most readily in the Old Testament, even more so in the New Testament. Because when we read from verse to verse or turn the page, we often forget that hundreds of years have gone by. We often forget that when God warns his people that this direction will lead to uh, destruction, it will lead to um, a lot of pain in your life if you continue toward that that path of idolatry. When God warns through prophet after prophet after prophet, if you continue to do so, then I'll have to discipline you. Sometimes hundreds of years have transpired, and then God has to use the last resort of discipline. The truest picture of God's mercy, though, is revealed in the New Testament. Jesus took upon himself all of the judgment and the wrath and the punishment and the condemnation that we deserve for our sin when he was hung on the cross. In verse 32, then I will punish their sin with a rod and their disobedience with beating. This, this word beating is stripes. Jesus received the beating. He received the stripes for our sin. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So in the New Testament, this is what God thinks of us, Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All the judgment for our sin, all of his wrath, all of his condemnation was taken upon his body so that we would not have to be condemned. 
So when people are feeling condemned or feeling judged by God, well, no, the judgment was upon Jesus. You may be being disciplined. And when we do sin, furthermore, he says, confess it, turn away from it, and receive forgiveness. Well, how often can I do that, pastor? Well, Jesus said 70 times 7. In other words, as many times as you need. It is true that our sin will lead us into some pain at times because we reap what we sow, but that's the law of nature. That's not God's wrath coming down upon us. For a believer, will there be consequences? Yes. Will there be pain sometimes for our disobedience? Yes. Will there be discipline? Yes. Will there be judgment, wrath, and condemnation? No. That was cast upon Jesus. His blood has covered us in the past, present, and future. The third lie that we grapple with is, I feel condemned by my sin then. In verse 89, 49, um, Lord, where is your unfailing love? You promised it to David with a faithful pledge. Consider how your servants are disgraced. I carry in my heart the insults of so many people. Your enemies have mocked me, O Lord. They mock your anointed king wherever he goes. To the Israelites, it sure felt as though God had rejected them. They had lost their home. They'd lost their city, they've lost their jobs, they've lost their identity in many respects, they've lost their place of worship in the temple, and they were taken into a foreign land as slaves. And when difficulties come into our lives, we feel forgotten, we feel rejected at times, and God understands those feelings. But this is when we must not rely upon our feelings, but on the truth of God's character and of his covenant promises. And you've all seen this picture, this next picture. Fact is the truth. Faith is our response to the truth. And then feelings come. You know, if we try to live, if we try to make the caboose pull the train, the train will go nowhere. But so often we respond by our feelings. God, I feel so far away, or I feel so unworthy, or I feel this or that. God says, don't respond by your feelings, but by the truth of my word. And when you respond to my truth, then the feelings of truth will follow. Believers are covered. Okay, uh, never, uh, Warren Wearsby says, never judge God's faithfulness on the basis of what you see or how you feel. His promises do not fail. Okay, those were, that was a little bit of a tangent. And then the very last point, the last point is this. God's faithfulness will never cease. Okay, we've looked at God's faithfulness in his character, God's faithfulness in his covenant, God's faithfulness in his chastisement. And now we're looking at the last C. God's faithfulness never ceases. That's the truth. That's the fact. Under the old covenant, again, it felt like God had broke his covenant with his people by sending them into exile, for example. But did he? The answer is no. Even under the old covenant, 
right after God warned them that I will punish their sin with a rod and their disobedience with a beating, right after that, in the very next verse, this is what he says. But I will never stop loving him nor fail to keep my promise to him. No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word I said. I've sworn an oath to David and in my holiness I cannot lie. His his, uh, dynasty will go on forever. His kingdom will endure as the sun. It will be as eternal as the moon, my faithful witness in the sky. In time, when the Israelites were able to look back, they were able to see the faithfulness of their God. They did eventually return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. He remained true to his covenant promises after all. Against all odds, the lineage of David continued and continued and will continue for all eternity. Charles Spurgeon writes, David's line in the person of Jesus is an endless one. The race of Jesus shows no sign of failure. No power, human or satanic, can break the Christian succession. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is in the lineage of David. He called himself the son of David. In Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then in the last book of the New Testament, John to the seven churches from Jesus Christ who is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That comes directly from Psalm 89, verse 27. Jesus, who continues to reign and will continue for all eternity, is the firstborn and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Hindsight is 2020, isn't it? If you feel stuck in darkness, like, God, I can't trust in your faithfulness. Hindsight is 2020. Remember how he's been faithful in the past, and you can thank him for that, and then, and then know that he'll be faithful in the future, and you can trust him for that. He's always faithful. And when you're old and gray, like the psalmist wrote, when I'm, I was young once and now I'm old, yet now looking back, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And this is why Ethan concluded with, in verse 52, praise the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Meaning, this is true. This is true. Just in review the last slide, God is faithful in his covenant. God is faithful in his, or his character, in his covenant. And then God is faithful in his chastening, even though it doesn't feel like he is at times. But God is faithfulness. It will never, ever cease. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you walk with us through the difficult times when we're being chastened or even when we're obedient and we're suffering for that. Whatever the case, Lord, uh, as we wrestle, just as uh, Israelites wrestled, just as the kings of, of Judah and Israel wrestled, uh, as we wrestle too, Lord, help us to live by the truth of your word, not by our feelings. Help us to know that you are a faithful God who will be true 
to your word, both now and forever. Amen.